today on Ag News Daily. The millennials and folks that uh, have been fascinated with this food pork movement are, are attracted to these types of communities. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm excited to be joining you all today from sunny 79 degree Orlando, Florida, here just for a day for the Commodity Classic. I'm not trying to rub it in, folks. It was brutally cold when I left the Des Moines area airport this morning. Not pleasant back in the Midwest, that's for sure. But down here in Florida, it is nice. I'm going to try and soak up some sun. going to try and bring you guys some great content from the Commodity Classic while I'm here for just like 24 hours it's crazy but here i am and if you're going to be around tomorrow on thursday walking around the commodity classic i'd love to chat meet up maybe do an interview feel free to hit me up on social media at delaney howell 07 or you can always tweet at at ag news daily you can find us on facebook as well folks it's gonna be a nice nice quick little trip here but Other than that, that's all I know for today. It's just me flying solo, Delaney Howell here, in case I maybe forgot to introduce myself. It's been a crazy day today, traveling uh, this morning into Orlando. Now I'm here. It's great weather, but we've still got to do the podcast. So Madison, I think, was taking a test today. I told her she should probably focus on school more than the podcast at this point. So we're going to give her a break for today. But there is still plenty of news to talk about for today. I'm going to kick it off here with an announcement Secretary Purdue made on Tuesday in relation to U.S.-China trade negotiations. He said over the last round of negotiations, the U.S. asked China to reduce tariffs on U.S. ethanol. And it wasn't immediate reaction by Beijing and the Chinese as to whether or not they were going to concede to this request. Last summer, Beijing imposed retaliatory tariffs of up to 70% on U.S. ethanol, and the U.S. is asking to reduce that tariff down to 15%. So we know, of course, that China is also moving towards implementing a nationwide E15 program which will stress their own corn reserves we uh, saw that fishy report come out what was it end of last year middle to end of last year saying look china has all these corn in reserve has all this corn in reserve really messed up one of the usda reports but they still are trying to move to that mandate of nationwide E15, I believe by 2020, listeners correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe 2020 is the goal they're shooting for there. So they're definitely going to need to source some ethanol from other countries if they want to make that happen. And the U.S. is saying, hey, look, we've got the supplies, we've got the capability, the infrastructure, let's work this out. So more uh, pieces to the pie here as we look at what's going on with kind of the trade talks. Going on also this week, we had trade talks last week. This week, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue and U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer are both testifying at a pair of House meetings this morning, as well as FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb will appear at a third hearing this afternoon. Perdue's hearing is going to be in front of the House Agricultural Committee, and uh, it's expected he's going to be grilled about questions for implementing the farm bill and specifically the dairy margin coverage program, which is one of those new uh, price programs set up in the 2018 farm bill. 
Lighthizer is appearing before the Ways and Means Committee just this morning. And, of course, the big question he's going to get asked about is the U.S.-China trade negotiations. There are certain to be some questions about the USMCA trade deal, the Section 232 tariffs, um, and that's all we know right now. They're hoping he can provide some insight into where that stands. Of course, the USMCA agreement has not been ratified by Congress, but interestingly enough, Mexican a Mexican official, Mexico's undersecretary for North America, Jesus Ciad, or Ciad, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, said that the Trump administration doesn't have the votes in Congress necessary to approve the USMCA trade agreement. And uh, I don't know how he knows this, but he was apparently involved in the final stages of this of the latest NAFTA or USMCA trade agreement and said he doesn't understand why some Democrats are demanding the agreement be reopened and amended, particularly in reference to labor and enforcement issues. And he said, you know, besides that piece of the puzzle going on, another piece is the steel and aluminum duties on Mexican products. He said, quote, has to be solved within the next few weeks. It's really a condition for launching the ratification process. So it sounds like we're still seeing some discrepancy there between, of course, the U.S. and Mexico. Canada has been been pretty quiet lately, but uh, Mexico is definitely making their voice heard at this point in time. And as I mentioned yesterday in our news section, there was that group of, or the coalition, I guess, of more than 200 businesses and farm and manufacturing groups that were coming together to push Congress to ratify the USMCA agreement. Kind of in conjunction with that, Morning Consults uh, released a poll essentially studying or I guess, polling respondents and their attitudes towards and and support towards the USMCA agreement. So apparently 32% of respondents said they, quote, somewhat agree USMCA based on, they somewhat support, excuse me, USMCA based on what they knew about it before they were surveyed. And 19% said they strongly support the agreement. Uh, The poll apparently suggests that support would grow if voters perceived it would benefit American business sectors, and 60% said they are more likely to support the deal if U.S. farmers can sell dairy products to Canada. Trading uh, or transitioning here back to the U.S. Chinese trade negotiations, U.S. trade negotiators have apparently laid out a wide list of trade barriers, including that ethanol piece I mentioned earlier, that they want to see the Chinese essentially lift during these ongoing negotiations. So far, it hasn't been extremely possible or accessible to get them to comply with that, but Produce did tell reporters that he sees engagement. It's very difficult to gauge their their, um, willingness, and they are engaged in conversation. They are listening, but they're unable to really determine their willingness to commit to some of these issues and see if they will accept these list of trade barriers and essentially take them off the table. So he said, which I think is no comes as no surprise, part of the problem they've been having is language barriers. Um, one of the U.S. demands, of course, is that China end its ban on pork produced with ractopamine, which we mentioned yesterday. But yeah, no surprise there. I think that language continues to be a barrier 
no surprise at all in my in my mind at least so okay and this just came out here as recording the podcast today in reference to secretary purdue's house agriculture committee that happened earlier today he said this is in reference to the e15 deadline here of june 1st it sounds like that Secretary Purdue doesn't feel so confident we're going to see that final rule to allow E15 for the first time to come to fruition before that June 1st deadline. He said, we really do need it. And again, the EPA is still working hard and is very committed to getting a final rule in place and having that announced so that can be in place by the summer driving season. Uh, He goes on to say, but in the event that they aren't, I know that's one of the things using one of the things of using enforcement discretion or announcing that the EPA is not going to be forcing folks to stop selling E15 in several states and that resellers are not in danger of having enforcement actions taken against them. And that was uh, Steve Sensky that made that comment, not Secretary Purdue. But of course, I think one of the issues here is that Administrator Wheeler, or I guess Acting Administrator Andrew Wheeler, has still not been confirmed yet. Um, that is expected to happen. I think he was heading to a session this week, actually, to potentially get that vote on the floor and see if he can get his nomination confirmed. As we know, mergers happen pretty frequently. Mergers and acquisitions happen pretty frequently or have been happening pretty frequently in the agronomy industry. And Bear's fourth quarter earnings from 2018 came out just today after their purchase of U.S. seed maker Monsanto, says the German company's fourth quarter earnings on Wednesday boded well and that profit. And uh, the article I'm reading doesn't say the specific amount of profit that they saw there in the in the fourth quarter, but they did say bear shares went up 4.3%. Of course, they are still continuing to see litigation mounting uh, in relation to some of the Monsanto products. And that apparently cost the company uh, somewhere around 15.8% of their core earnings or the continuing litigation uh, in relationship to some of the Monsanto issues has been costing the company some. But overall, they, I think they feel like it was a pretty good investment, a pretty good merger and acquisition there. So Bayer wrapped up their purchase of Monsanto in June. They have not yet been able to show that it's pulling power that its pulling power um, has been helping it increase market share and profit, but most of their profits are, or 80% of their profits are earned during that January to June time period. So that Q4 there wasn't a good indication, they say, of things to come. So definitely something to continue to watch. Well, I don't know how many of you guys have been watching the commodity markets today, but I certainly have on and off the plane today. Folks, again, Final reminder before uh, many of you, or maybe some of you already are here in Orlando, heading to the Commodity Classic, Ted Seifert and Matt Zayner will be here this week, taking folks out to dinner, chatting with them about the commodity markets, helping them put together strategies to protect their bottom line. You can give Ted Seifert a shout on the Twitter machine at the Ted Spread. Or if you are not able to make it down to Orlando but still want to get in contact with them, give them a call at their office today at 312-277-0050. Looking across the grains for today, a lot of red on the screen as we continue to deal with these trade and uncertain issues 
impacting the markets. The March corn contract down two and a half cents at three sixty three and three quarters, while the May down two and a quarter cent to end at three seventy three and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the March contract down a quarter of a cent on the day at nine oh three and a half. The May down a quarter of a cent at nine sixteen and three quarters and looking out into the future of the November contract only contractor of the starting contract there with a little positivity in the markets today, up a half a cent at nine forty nine and a quarter. In the wheat pits, the March contract up three quarters of the cent on the day at four sixty one even. The May down a penny and a half to close at four sixty six and three quarters. Looking over into the livestock pits, we're seeing some mixed signals here in the live cattle markets. The February contract down seventeen and a half cents to close at one twenty nine forty. That contract does expire here in just a couple of days. The April unchanged on the day at one twenty nine ninety two and a half. Looking out into the deferred June contract, up ten cents on the day to close at one twenty fifteen. Feeder cattle showed some strength today. The March contract put on forty two and a half cents to close at one forty three eighty seven and a half. The April put on forty five cents to close at one forty seven twenty two and a half. In the lean hog markets, a little bit of a mixed spread here as well. The April contract down twelve and a half cents to close at fifty five sixty, while the May up twenty seven and a half cents to close at sixty five sixty. And rounding out our markets with, of course, the Class Three dairy milk futures. February off the board for today, so we'll start with the March contract up six cents to close at fifteen thirty three. The April up thirteen cents to close at fifteen sixteen. For today's interview, I caught up with Steve Brewer, who many of you might know from People's Company, but he's been branching out and is one of the founders of a new concept coming specifically to Iowa and maybe to communities around you called the Agra Hood. So I'll let Steve fill us in on what that is for agriculture. Well, I'm catching up with Steve Brewer, who is one of the partners in Iowa's first agrihood. First of all, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks for your interest. So, okay, let's talk about what an agrihood is, because as, as I mentioned there in the introduction, this is the first one in Iowa. So what is it? Yeah, there are several of these popping up around the country. There's about 200 agrihoods nationally now, and think of a, a golf course development, but rather than a, a golf course with, with housing around it, you've got a, a farm and gardens and agricultural uses with um, uh, neighborhoods, commercial and residential put around the subdivision. Interesting. So how did, I mean, as you mentioned, there's some around the country, but how did the idea come to be to start one in Iowa and in the Des Moines area more so? Yeah, we've we've had an opportunity to tour. I've been out to Chicago to tour one of these, and then I've been out to Virginia to the the agrihood out there two or three different times now. And then a couple of my colleagues have been down to the uh, Agritopia agrihood in, in Arizona, and it's a, it's just a fascinating concept. They have farm stands, they've got craft breweries, they've got vineyards, and uh, and like I said, a lot of gardens and whatnot. And so uh, a lot of the the millennials and folks that uh, have been fascinated with this food to fork movement are are attracted to these types of communities, and we've been looking for a while for somewhere to do one of these in in Iowa, and and uh, uh, I live in the Norwalk area, and this little community of Cummings just uh, located in between West Des Moines and Norwalk, and so we thought it would be an ideal place to to put one of these. The the Great Western Bike Trail runs through. Uh, coming Iowa, and there's already some some unique things there. With Central Iowa Distilling is actually 
making a, a whiskey product out of corn um, and coming right now. And so that's right across the road from our from our agrihood project. So, Steve, how does the agrihood work if I'm a, a I guess, more of an ag entity or I own something kind of related to ag? Do I have to apply to be part of the agrihood or do I need to locate my business there? Walk me through kind of the, I guess, the dynamic there. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways to structure these. So there's there's been different business models that have been put into place. Um, we're, we've hired a consultant who goes by the the handle Farmer D. He lives in San Diego. He actually lives on the old Poinsettia farm uh, that's been converted into an agrihood as well. And uh, we're in the process of determining how the farm will function within this this agrihood. Sometimes they're supported by the homeowners association. Uh, what we're trying to do here, though, is create a sustainable business model for the farm um, so that it stands on its own without community support um, needed um, through the HOA to, to, to subsidize it. And so we're, we're still trying to figure out that business model. We don't have all the um, pieces in place yet. Um, uh, the Farmer D is actually going to be in Iowa uh, yet this week on Friday presenting um, at, at a conference. And, and so, yeah, we're still formalizing our, our farming model with him as we speak. Okay. So would it be theoretically somebody would come in and manage or run this farm from a separate entity or you'd hire somebody privately? Yeah. So what, what we're, what, if I had to speculate, we're probably going to bring in um, somebody to run the farming component uh, within the project. And that would be the, the little food to, to market, uh, 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 farmer's market within the project. Uh, we've already got part of the acres that we're going through the organic certification process on to have those acres certified um, to be organic. Uh, but there's about 400 acres here, so there'll very much be some conventional agricultural uh, farming as well um, uh, with conventional practices. Uh, and it's going to take a long time to develop this uh, project. It's probably a 10 to 15 year project. So there'll be a lot of different agricultural uses that'll happen uh, while the, while the community's built, being built around it. Uh, but right now uh, we're thinking we'll bring in a farmer to operate the community farm. And then what we've seen in other agrihoods around the country is they'll set up CSAs where they'll deliver food to the um, community, uh, the citizen that live within the community as well. Huh. Okay. That's pretty interesting. So Steve, I know this is kind of in the, still you're waiting to get it greenlit um, essentially, but what kind of feedback have you gotten from the greater Des Moines area city and then folks that live in that area? It's been really fascinating. You know, in our business uh, with people's company, we're constantly getting folks calling, looking for two or three acres of land to build their dream home on. And you, you're always seeing farms get cut up where somebody's carving off those those acreages. And, and this is a, a way to give people uh, that agricultural experience without cutting up the farms. Uh, Cumming has Des Moines Waterworks water and it has a uh, regional sewer system. So it's got all the utilities to do a more uh, dense development, uh, but still have those rural amenities within it. And so we're uh, we're getting great feedback from um, the the city council and the planning and zoning commission and the mayor of coming uh, because it's been important to them to keep their rural community and their rural roots. Uh, but they also recognize that they're right in the the growth pattern of the the city of Des Moines as well. Uh, as far as feedback from from other folks, uh, we're actually getting a lot of interest that uh, has been mind blowing. Folks that live in downtown Des Moines now. 
uh, are reaching out and saying, hey, this is the first first community that I've seen that I would move out of downtown Des Moines to live in. And so there's a, there's a lot of interest. I think um, that, you know, folks want to be connected with agriculture. They want to be connected with their food. And, and this is a way to, to experience nature and, and achieve those goals. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of, as you mentioned, the, the kind of soil to table or fork to table movement is huge. Um, how does that work then? I know you're kind of still speculating because you're not at like a launching stage yet, but what would that look like then if folks want to move into the agri-hood? Do they just essentially have to buy a home? Do they have to apply to live there? Yes, this will be very much a traditional subdivision where you've got lots for sale and builders building homes and whatnot. There will be a variety of different housing types uh, from townhomes to condos to single family to larger estate lots. And so if you live within the community, then you'll have access to all the agricultural amenities within the community. Okay, that makes sense. So we keep talking about kind of what stage you're at, but fill us in what stage are you at here in the development or the rollout process? We're in the really early stages. We're in the process of just finishing the land acquisition. Uh, we're negotiating our, what they call a planned uh, urban development or a PUD with the city of coming right now to get all the zoning in place to accommodate the, uh, uh, the agrihood. So we're very much in the early stages. I'd say uh, we probably won't break ground uh, until the spring of 2020. Uh, so very much in the planning stage right now. Same with the um, the ag- agricultural component that we talked about as well. Still a lot of moving parts to, to formalize before it's a real deal. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of moving parts. Steve, have you done any research or looked at other agrihoods or that type of community around the U.S. to see what kind of economic impact this could have? Uh, you know, we've, we've looked at the number of housing units that this will bring. This will bring about 700 uh, housing units to coming. And if you do some back of the envelope math on the commercial and residential, uh, it's about a $260 million project once it's fully built out. Uh, we haven't gone any further in terms of what that would generate for the local economy in terms of sales or, or um, tax base or that sort of thing. Uh, but it's definitely a huge, uh, huge project for the city of Cumming. Yeah, absolutely. Bringing in a lot of new revenue, I'm sure, new folks to live in the area. Steve, kind of a final question for you here. As you look out into the future, obviously you're still very early on in this development of the agri-hoods, but let's say this one here, this initial one in Cummings goes really well. What's the goal for either that one or future expansion for agri-hoods across the state of Iowa or even the Midwest or U.S.? You know, that's a good question. Since this came out that we were we were moving this forward, we've had a, several cities and counties across the state reach out to us and ask if we'd be interested in doing one of these in their community. Uh, coming is uniquely positioned. Like I said, it's right off Interstate 35. The borders the city of West Des Moines. It's in the Norwalk School District. It has access to all those amenities that um, required uh, of a, a development with sewer and water uh, and transportation. And you can hop on the Great Western Bike Trail and ride into downtown Des Moines. You're about 10 minutes from the airport. You're about 10 minutes from West Des Moines. So it's got this small town charm, yet it's it's got all the urban amenities. And so it'd be hard to, to find another community that would um, you'd be able to replicate this like you would in coming. But uh, if it's successful, I'm sure we'll look for other opportunities around the state. Awesome. Steve, thank you so much for sharing about this little project you've been working on. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for your interest. 
Again, that was Steve Brewer there with the Agrihood community concept. I think that is fascinating. I mean, I don't live too far out of Des Moines. I would be enticed to live somewhere like that, especially, you know, if I was, well, I guess I am a young person, but, you know, coming back to Des Moines after I graduated college, that would have been enticing as somewhere to live as opposed to being maybe more in the city. Um, I definitely think that that is an interesting idea, so... Sounds like we'll just have to keep an eye on that one. As he mentioned, they're still in some pretty preliminary stages. So I think it's going to be something to watch here down the pipeline. Folks, if you are interested or see interesting things in the news, have them going on in your hometown areas, and you think it would make an interesting podcast episode, please feel free to shoot us a message on Facebook or Twitter at Ag News Daily. You can also shoot us a message from our new home, globalagnetwork.com. A ton of great podcasts have been posted here the last couple of days. I know the Girls Talk Ag podcast, got to give them a special shout out. They are hitting their two-year mark. So I, I didn't realize Ag News Daily and Girls Talk Ag had almost the same anniversary. So that's a big congrats to them. But there are tons of other great podcasts there as well. Folks, with that, I'm going to let you go. And I hope to see some of you here at the Commodity Classic in Orlando tomorrow. (laughs) 